I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. David, you remember I read an email on the last episode of this podcast from Slovakia. Oh yeah, I remember that well. We were talking about the Spotify listenership data. Well, it turns out neither you nor I can read Spotify listenership data, <laughs> which is probably kind of alarming since we work for Spotify. But we had this listener, Dennis Schwarks, in Slovakia. And I said, well, he is, he listens to the press box more than 96% of people in Slovakia. Well, Dennis sent a very, very polite corrective uh, in email that I'll read to you. The message from Spotify, he writes, was that I am listening to all Spotify podcasts, more than 96% of my fellow Slovaks. <laughs> not that 4% of Slovaks listen to the press box more than me. That I believe is not possible as I am pretty sure I have listened to every episode in 2021, start to finish. <laughs> well, uh, in my defense, I just responded to what you read to me. So I'm guilty of not preparing for the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> slightly less guilty about not understanding the data, although I probably wouldn't have understood that either. It was actually even more flattering to us. Sure. He's number one by default because he has listened to every single episode of the press boxes here in its entirety. Yeah, he's in a he's in a tie for number one with who knows how many people. Maybe none, but uh, he's but certainly I, I'm number gonna one. I'm going to go none. I'm going to go none <laughs> for every episode all the way through. He, uh, Dennis, uh, our friend here, continues. I believe you and David should make it to the Slovak podcasting convention, and I would yes. be happy to arrange. David, can I interest you in a trip to the Slovak Podcasting Convention? I could not say no to that offer. That sounds fantastic. I wonder who else is going to go. <laughs> I don't know, but listen to this update. Uh, he says, my country is in the growth phase of this industry, which can be a bit painful. Everyone who can speak has a podcast now, pretty much. <laughs> I wonder what country that sounds like. Yeah, it sounds like they're right on track to follow in the U.S.'s footsteps there. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, best from Bratislava, Dennis. So thank you, Dennis, for listening once again. Thank you for the update and the corrective, because David and I clearly don't know what we're talking about. Coming up on today's show, we're going to try to do better. When we answer the question, why did Pat McAfee, the sports podcast host, get paid 
And also, who's going to fill the Chris Wallace-sized hole at Fox News? Plus a pair of writer obituaries, all that and more on the Press Box. A part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Hello, media consumers. Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker here, along with producer Isaiah Blakely, who is sitting in for Erica. David Pat McAfee has cashed in. He is the former Indianapolis Colts punter who started a podcast after retiring from the NFL in 2016. He has Aaron Rodgers on the show every week. Now he's making Aaron Rodgers money from FanDuel. The deal is four years, $120 million, what McAfee himself says is, quote, absurd money. David, what do we make of Pat McAfee's new deal? I wholeheartedly agree that it's absurd money. But it, given that it's sort of imaginary money, Something's worth what it's worth, but it doesn't have to necessarily have a relationship to some someone else's salary in the, in the non-broadcasting world, whatever. I mean, I struggle to think what the right amount would be, right? I mean, I, it's, I think a lot of people are saying, wow, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to be like, FanDuel should have made that deal for $10 million, not $30 million a year or something. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure what the coherent argument is for that because um, obviously they paid what they're going to pay. I th- I mean, I have a lot of different reactions. One is, I mean, both as a professional wrestling fan and as a just general sports media fan, I am a big Pat Pat McAfee guy. Um, I've met him a time or two. He's sweet and, and you know, he's smart. And, and uh, yep. there's something about maybe it's just the podcasting era um, and maybe it's something more specific to his brand, his his persona. But he's so himself, he's so fully himself out there that you do feel connected to him and you feel a sort of joy when he has this kind of success, whether or not you're an avid listener, right? I mean, it's, I guess it's, I guess there's a lot of people out there who are like, I feel, you know, like I, I, I'm very aware of who Pat McAfee is and he's not my kind of guy, you know, whatever. But, um, I don't know. He's 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 to, as far as I'm concerned, he's he's sort of an irrepressible force, and this is you know a great deal for him. It's also you know a great deal for him when he uh, it's a great move by him to announce that he's giving what six million dollars to charity upon the signature of the contract. He's giving two hundred fifty k to all of his like day ones. Um, when he signed, I don't even remember what deal it was that he signed when he kind of went door to door to his to his you know day one you know producers and stuff uh and gave them each a bag of fifty thousand dollars that was a previous windfall but it was just some of the best youtube content you could imagine right i mean and and it's sort of <laughs> it sort of markets the 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 robin hood style generosity that he portrays but it like i think you know you could point at it and be like well it's just pr but it's also like it, it, that just goes back to what I said before. He's sort of inseparable from the machine. The Pat McAfee person is inseparable from the Pat McAfee machine. And you could say that in a negative way about a lot of people. I think for McAfee, it's a positive. Doesn't he feel to you like an ex-athlete who didn't go to media training and have all the personality and spontaneity sucked out of him by that process? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, that was his, he absolutely does. And that was sort of his gimmick, if you will, in the NFL towards the end. He was more loudmouth than he was uh, indispensable, I guess, at times. And he, but he did seem to retire on his own terms 
you know, when uh, at a time when he could have stuck around and, and played a few more years. Um, but, you know, he was getting he was making making his, uh, you know, entries into the into the media world before he retired. And I think that's the right way to put it. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of athletes out there. A lot of them work very hard at sort of being media personalities and and have kind of followed a certain track to do that. And, uh, you know, McAfee, I think from the beginning was just determined to be himself or to be a different kind of sports media personality. Yeah. It, and it feels like that there's a way to do this where you come out of the league and you go through this ropes course where you learn to talk in 10 and 15 second bites after the play is over. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. play, oh, you know, Joe, I, I think you're absolutely right. Here we go. And l- let's show you what we're doing here. But as he's shown in Tony Romo in a very different way, that sometimes when you leap out directly, you didn't learn any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And you're not sort of talking like everybody else is talking. Right. You're just talking. It's not even you're saying different stuff, though that's true in McAfee's case. You're also just talking in different rhythms. Like he can talk really fast when he's doing his podcast a yeah. lot of the time. And he can, you know, just kind of go in all these really different tangents. And I'm like, that again, it, pleasingly, that doesn't sound like a guy who's gone through the broadcast factory and come out the other side. It's funny. It makes me think of I was just yesterday. I was watching the NFL, whatever the NFL countdown on the NFL Network is before before kickoff, and uh, Kurt Warner was hosting his little like out, out from behind the desk segment, and Steve Mariucci came up to be a second, and Kurt Warner's like, actually, no, <laughs> we've we've blocked this incorrectly. I don't need you, Steve Mariucci. I need Michael Irvin up here, and he replaced him. And Michael Irvin was surprised to get up there. And they showed a clip and Michael Irvin reacted to it. And it was clearly impromptu because he wasn't planning on being there, but it sounded exactly like everything else. Michael, like the tone of voice was this very practiced, like very Michael Irvin sitting behind a desk tone of voice. And I know Irvin does radio and like he's not a robot, but it's the but the but he's learned to be a certain style of presenter that is that is uh I mean, it's impressive that he's doing that and thinking on his feet simultaneously, right? I mean, I was just sort of like wowed by the whole thing. But it is, it's a very it's a very different generation or iteration of sports media personality. And McAfee's sort of just decided to be, I mean, to call him sort of, you know, the podcast generation seems like an oversimplification. His he's doing things in a very unique way, but it is just a lot more of a despite the you know the sort of like inherent motion and anxiety in the show it does feel like a very laid back sort of way to do the sports world that's a good word for it because so much of the stuff we see on tv on sports television feels very airless Mm -hmm. like you've just you've sucked any spontaneity out of it you've sucked all those kinds of things out of it and i just feel that when you put air back into something, when you give it, by the way, the Manning cast is another good example of this. Now, those guys are much more buttoned down in their presentation than Pat McAfee, I would say, Mm -hmm. but it does feel like you don't know what they're going to say next. And you don't exactly know how they're going to say it. And the program does have some spontaneity into it. No, for sure. And it's such a good reminder that television cannot be okay. Now, Boomer Esiason is going to talk. And now James Brown is going to talk. It can't be that. Or it gets so boring and so stilted. Yeah, there's a lot of conversations to be had about the sort of evolution of the media here. I mean, it's even worth mentioning that McAfee's show is on 
what XM radio on Mad Dog Station, but simulcast. Like, yep. But but I think I mean I I know it as a YouTube show, right? I mean that's how I engage with it, and um, I know I'm sure many other people of my generation or the generation beneath us know it the same way. When when the news reports about him come out, he's referred as, to as a as a satellite radio host, right? Which is true, but because that's a sort of like old fashioned point of reference, when it would be it would sort of be, seem to carry a different meaning to call him like a YouTube personality or something, right? So it's but, it, but it, he just sort of straddles these two generations in the same way, sort of a parallel to what you were talking about before, um, and incidentally, people keep waving around this FanDuel deal as if he's going to be a broadcaster on like FanDuel.com or like on the FanDuel television network. This is just, I mean, they've they've paid him a whole lot of money to be their exclusive, what like gambling lines provider for the next three, four years. And I guess, I mean, I, without like, you know, going down any kind of like inquisitive path, path I think if this were somebody else, we probably would be rightfully asking the question of like, how do you structure your priorities when you're just getting such an overwhelming income stream from one place that's not your host and it's not anything else? You know, I mean, it's not your your owner. Um, but FanDuel's, you know, there's a whole lot of gambling money in sports media right now. And I think McAfee's probably better equipped to handle it than just about anybody else who'd be given that bag. But it is a really interesting place for, for us to be. He seems right in that zone. But if we're going to ask, Hey, uh, you know, what are, what are the kind of, uh, consequences from getting so much money from gambling? Who are we not going to ask this question to at this moment in history? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everybody's getting the gambling money. Yeah. Everybody's getting the gambling money. Let's include the ringer in that statement. Yeah. Um, and I think what, one of the interesting things is what are you doing with the gambling money? And, and you talk about like Meadowlark media, Dan Lebatar, John Skipper, that whole group. Now, that seems a lot less adjacent to gambling culture than Pat McAfee does or Barstool does. Mm -hmm. But they're apparently taking it and going off and doing their very particular things. And that is, in a way, part of what is allowing them to leave ESPN, or at least in Lebetard in his particular cast case, leave ESPN and go do his own creative stuff on the side. Mm -hmm. So gambling becomes this way to leave the mothership. And Pat yeah. McAfee, by the way, started at Barstool Sports when he left the Indianapolis Colts mm -hmm. after he retired in 2016. He leaves a couple of years later, and you can go be a free agent now if you have talent. Obviously, we're talking about very talented people here, but and go in that money in a way allows you to just go do your thing. Well, and if you're you have the opportunity to work, I mean, to, to have a much, you know, to tighten the belt and have a much more streamlined operation. If you're just doing a podcast or then you're doing a podcast with cameras on you, you know, you, you kind of rebuilding, uh, you know, reinventing the wheel, although, and which is something that most people who have the opportunity are rightly scared to do, right? Because you, you, you're used to the infrastructure of your previous employer. But when you look at an operation like metal leg, like you said, or, I mean, you know, any of these that we're talking about, a little of gambling money or advertisers money or whatever else can go a really long way. If what you're producing is a podcast with like just you talking to a microphone or just you and like five people who are just sort of hanging around doing it. Right. You don't need to pay for the light bulbs at ESPN. 
You know, you don't need to, I mean, you don't, you don't need to be subsidizing the rest of an entertainment empire. Uh, you don't have to meet the, you know, necessarily like the, the profit margins that the Disney corporation is demanding of you. You can do it, uh, in a much more streamlined way. And then, you know, eventually you don't have to be worried about the profit margins anymore because somebody's giving you $120 million. Did you see the Dave Portnoy tweet about McAfee's deal? I did. I did. Far be it for me to... Do you want to read it? I'm sorry. Sure. This deal is specifically because of us. Portnoy tweeted, FanDuel declined to make an offer on Barstool, and they could have had myself, PMT, McAfee, and everybody else, and they balked at $100 million. Barstool has redefined everybody's worth by our success. To which McAfee responded, we're lucky to be a part of the, an incre the incredible collection of folks that have gotten the opportunity to work for the pirate ship. Thanks for leading the way. Cheers, boss. <laughs> uh... I don't for I be it for me to, to defend Portnoy, but I mean I don't think that that was like an irrational that was not amongst his most outrageous tweets. And uh I don't think it was particularly galling in any in any specific way. I mean, yeah, I, I it's probably largely true. Whether or not it was, you know, the time or place to say it, I think is sort of beside the point. Uh, McAfee obviously took the well, you'd have to sort of define the low road to say he took the high road, but he he kind of took the smart way out. There's no reason to be oh, poking the bear right there. But like, you know, I mean, it is true. I mean, and and it's got to be, I mean, you know, Barstool is not hurting for money, but, you know, you, when you're in that position, you're going to see people getting rich off of your, you know, whether or not it's off your coattails or just like just people who are tangential to your sphere. That's what's going to happen. And, um. You know, Portnoy is going to stir some stuff up whenever he gets the opportunity. Well, that was certainly the launch pad for McAfee. But this kind mm -hmm. of deal and that kind of success relies on him actually being really, really good outside of that zone. Uh -huh. I mean, that was not going to happen just by being barstool adjacent. I know you're not saying that, but uh, that's that's the, the oh, second no, no, part yeah. here. It's not because of barstool. Barstool probably helped it in the in the long run but uh yeah i also wonder what, what's pat maffey gonna do what else is he gonna do remember there was the monday night football thing for a while should he be in the booth for monday night football he was on with the mannings the other day mm -hmm. does he have another like so he does this does he have another big mainstreamy kind of football thing sports media thing in him do you think besides this well, I'm sure he does. I, you know, he he managed to travel to wherever SmackDown is taping every Friday night and and do that show. And I mean, he, he's an incredible entertainer. Uh, you know, some wrestling fans are split on whether he or Monday Night Raw's uh, color commentator Corey Graves are the best at their jobs. But um, but McAfee has been an incredible breath of fresh air to that product. Now. So, you know, you look at his schedule and it's kind of hard to imagine what else he would do, but I guess he's got weekends free. You know, if he wanted to do a, a national broadcast, I'm sure he would find the time. Um, but I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of interesting. It's, you know, it's what it's one of those things where I, I would be hard pressed to imagine him saying no to a huge platform. Um, but at least now he's certainly got the ability to wait for the exact right opportunity to come along. I'd be very interested for to, to hear to find out what he would be looking for david let's do the overworked twitter joke of the week where we celebrate a gag that was so obvious that all of media twitter made it at exactly the same time send your nominees to at the press box pod where they are always gratefully received uh everybody david loved that jeremy strong profile in the new yorker last week <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Everybody, that is, except for some of Jeremy Strong's collaborators in the entertainment business <laughs> who don't understand that a great journalistic profile is not a binary, this person good, this person bad. It could be have shades of things, right? It can be out to describe somebody and what yeah. they really like. Uh, one of the objectors in particular was Aaron Sorkin, who had a response to the piece, but doesn't have social media. <laughs> So it was posted on Jessica Chastain's Twitter account. Chastain wrote, Aaron Sorkin doesn't have social media, so asked me to post this on his behalf. It was an overworked Twitter joke to post something else on Aaron Sorkin's behalf. <laughs> I saw the Hello, Mr. Police thing from the movie The Snowman. Anyway, et cetera, et cetera. Big moment on Twitter for that this week. <laughs> it's good stuff. In other entertainment news, David, there was a profile of actress Gabby Hoffman in The Guardian with this headline. Gabby Hoffman, colon, I really love my job, but I don't want to do it that often. It was an overworked <laughs> Twitter joke to write, this is also how I feel about my job. <laughs> From journalists, we would have also accepted, this is how I talk to my editor. <laughs> and finally, David... The Hollywood Reporter, a lot of entertainment news this week, has a story about Jennifer Aniston that got some attention. Mm -hmm. Turns out that Friends reunion was pretty emotionally complicated for Aniston. She wound up confronting a lot of old feelings. Time travel is hard, she tells the magazine. <laughs> it was an overworked Twitter joke to write, so no one told her life was going to be this way. <laughs> Thanks to Gib. If you're posting the Rembrandt song on Jennifer Aniston's behalf, congrats. You made the overworked Twitter joke of the week. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25000 miles on, I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, Tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car. Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven. And your favorite refreshment just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small slurpy drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores, see app for full terms, all rights reserved. 
All right, in the notebook dump, David, there is a job opening at Fox News. After this fairly shocking announcement Sunday morning from one Chris Wallace. But after 18 years, I have decided to leave Fox. I want to try something new to go beyond politics to all the things I'm interested in. I'm ready for a new adventure, and I hope you'll check it out. And so, for the last time, dear friends, that's it for today. Have a great week, and I hope you'll keep watching Fox News Sunday. A couple of responses to that. How much did you love the old-fashioned television goodbye to dear friends? (laughs) Yes. Yeah, dear friends is really top-notch stuff. You don't hear that much anymore. That's kind of more of the Paul Harvey radio generation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Goodbye. Also, he mentioned adventure. What's the most adventurous thing you can imagine Chris Wallace doing on television? I don't know. I just don't know. I mean, you could take it really literally and put them on, you know, Animal Planet, shark diving or something. <laughs> Some sort of like, you know, uh, house renovation travelogue, I guess, might be more his speed. I, I, It seems like all these guys just end up like, you know, d- taking photos of national parks and publishing them for Father's Day. I don't really know what like the what the most shocking thing he could possibly do would be. There are a lot of low-grade travel shows, aren't they in the world? Aren't there in the world? <laughs> yeah. I was at a used bookstore up in Pasadena this weekend. I was in the travel section. There was like a Billy Connolly's Route 66 book. <laughs> and it was from like a British travel show. And so stuff you didn't even know existed. Like every celebrity eventually will have a travel show. <laughs> yes. The actual answer in Chris Wallace's case is that he's going to CNN. As the New York Times notes, he will expand his portfolio beyond politics to include business, sports, and entertainment. He will host an interview program starting next year on CNN Plus, a new digital streaming platform. All right. That's David's reaction. It feels like for our purpose, or for for the purposes of a strictly media podcast, there's a lot of the story that's left to be told right what the details the contract negotiations with both sides were and everything else that doesn't seem like a particularly shocking move for this sort of you know retirement plan for chris wallace i think that he will probably do these other things that he's interested in and they'll probably largely happen on the over the top platform and then we'll see him pop up to like interview presidential candidates every four years details of the contract negotiations and also how much of this was the pulling the ripcord after the Tucker Carlson documentary series. Yeah. Which people said that he was one of the people who was concerned about, as you could imagine, or had some objections to. We've seen people like Jonah Goldberg and Stephen Hayes walk out the door of Fox News in the last couple of weeks. So there's a big point of it's true. How much was I was I like, okay, I've tolerated a lot. Okay, that's it. But it's I mean at the same time, I mean, listen, that's probably the story. But at the same time, it wouldn't be shocking to find out that his contract was up and Fox is ready to move on. You know, I mean, there, there's just it, anything is possible. I mean, obviously he has a lot of value to them as the sort of most impartial anchoring person that they could ink to a deal. Um, but who knows if that's something that they value at this point. It certainly is going to be interesting to see who replaces him, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be this incredible proxy battle that everyone's going to have an opinion on. You know, I mean, there's there's this sort of there's, a, you know, a lot of conservatives who have hated him for a long time to think that he's just like just a ball and chain around the ankle of Fox News. It's like trying to drag it down into like the, <laughs> the, the, the mainstream media abyss. 
And then there's, you know, obviously the more the liberal side that finds, you know, takes exception to him at every opportunity, sort of like Shepard Smith, you know, but like still thinks it's important that he's there in that seat and understands that the alternatives could be much worse. I mean, sometimes it's like people treat Shep's people like Wallace and Shep Smith as like like Supreme Court justices who just are like somehow morally obligated to stay in their seat for as long as they can until like a liberal <laughs> president can can replace them, you know, or whatever. But like, but but it's it's um it's it's going to be very. I mean, I am actually like geared up for the conversation of who's going to be hosting Fox News Sunday. It'll probably end up being a total like letdown, but just in terms of excitement. But it could be. It's going to be crazy. Just searching Twitter for that clip we listened to. Oh my gosh, the reactions to Chris Wallace from conservative blue checkmark people that I have never heard of, <laughs> or I've vaguely heard of them, but I'm not sure what they do mm-hmm. or what they did. I mean, you kind of forget that there's a whole galaxy of people out there who think Fox News is too ideologically heterodox. <laughs> like, yes. like here, like this guy was this guy was pushing us in directions we didn't like every Sunday. Thank goodness Chris Wallace is gone. And just this venom, and you're going, what? Okay. And as you say, this is Fox News that has held him and Brett Bear up and gone, no, see, look, uh, you criticize us, Chris Wallace, Brett Bear, holding them up. The, the these are real journalists right here. It's just a really, really interesting whirlpool of whatever it is. Yeah, I mean, and it's for that reason that I kind of have to imagine that, like, Fox News would just rather not be having to deal with this right now or ever. You know, I mean, the, the unless that unless they just had decided specifically to go in another direction, a specific direction with somebody else, you know, reaction be damned or... And the reaction is going to be great PR one way or the other. All good press is bad press, whatever. It's not going to be a fun time for them if they're actually starting from scratch. No. And he was a guy who could host presidential debates. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there, look, there is a real prestige factor. I mean, I, will fewer people watch Fox News Sunday if he's not on it? I, I don't know. I sort of doubt it, given what we've seen Fox News ratings over the years. But there is, there is an advantage to having a guy you can push out there in the debate. He hosted the <laughs> extremely memorable, for bad reasons, first debate between Donald Trump and Joe Biden this year. Mm-hmm. He's the whole, spent the whole time trying to get Donald Trump to stop talking. But that was their guy. And that was a guy that Joe Biden and his camp could be like, okay, you know, he, he, we, we, can, we can roll with this. Yeah. As a possible debate host. It's, um, it's interesting. But anyway, Chris Wallace, off to CNN. Uh, David, I got a couple of obits for you. This one uh, came our way from Obi-Wan Jacoby. I'm glad he suggested it. Dave Campbell, Texas sports writer of many, many, many years, has died at age 96. Did you ever buy Dave Campbell's Texas football magazine? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Possibly at a Kroger or Tom Thumb in the checkout aisle. Yep. Uh, Yep. I mean, it's. Maybe that sounds crazy to someone listening to this that's not hasn't spent any time in Texas or in, you know, the South, Southeast or whatever. But yes, um, the Texas Dave Campbell's Texas football was a magazine that was that probably was closer to the register than People magazine in most of the places that we went when we were growing up. And it was certainly a lot bigger. It was like the September issue of Vogue. 
I mean, it was oh, yeah. this huge magazine for people for for the non Texans among us. Dave Campbell was a guy, sports writer in Waco, 1960. He founds this magazine called Texas Football because he's dissatisfied with how the national college football magazines are covering Texas colleges, in particular Baylor, David's alma mater, once got left out of a national magazine. So by the time we're in high school, Dave Campbell's Texas Football is this huge magazine that includes a write-up on every high school in Texas. Every high school football team, even lowly Pascal High School and our crappy football team, <laughs> where David and I spent our Friday nights, we were written up in Dave Campbell's Texas football. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I often think that the Friday Night Lights Texas high school football mystique is kind of overdone in a way. Mm -hmm. Like, are people in Ohio or Florida or California really less? Is, is the high school football any different really in those places than it is in texas yeah one way that texas was different that magazine yep and that idea that there's going to be a magazine in the state that is going to be just for people who love high school football and football generally in texas yeah and you may never read the write-up from abilene or el paso or you know Houston suburbs, but you just want this thing to kind of sit on your coffee table mm -hmm. for six months. Truly awesome. He sold the magazine in the eighties. It still carries his name. Greg Tepper and those guys do a great job down there. Now, anyway, farewell, Dave Campbell, another media obit for you, David, best-selling vampire novelist Anne rice has died at age 80. Oh man. Did you ever read an Anne rice novel? Never read Anne rice. Don't have any, you know, snarky objection to it, but it, but I I, ne I never I never read Anne Rice. I don't think I was very, really down for the vampires when she was big, and is not not re-entered my uh, rediscovery library in my in adulthood. So maybe, maybe it's time to check her out. Were you interested in vampires at another time, just not the time Anne Rice was big? Is I've that what's read, implied to that? I've statement? read some you know some kind of interesting i mean listen who doesn't watch what we do in the shadows i've i've watched, I've, I've, I've read some sort of post apocalyptic vampire fair in my one, and <laughs> over the past decade yeah sure uh so i'm pretty unfamiliar i don't even think i've seen interview with the vampire but i was uh i was amused to note in the new york times obituary it, fe it features a solitary vampire who is telling his life story to a reporter that that is the device of interview with a vampire. She gets a lot of credit for bringing vampires back into vogue. Uh, she told once told ABC, when I go to my signings, I'm the most boring person there. Everybody else is dripping with velvet and lace and bringing me dead roses wrapped in leather handcuffs. And I love it. And of course, part of that is bringing vampires, which are cool back into the popular imagination. The other part is using a vampire. The New York times says is this kind of literary vehicle to, to reach people who might feel isolated and lonely, right? You're hitting these kind of notes and putting it in your, in your books. I love this quote, David, because you and I are always so interested in genre fiction and how it oh, matches yeah. up with capital L literature. This is a great one. What matters to me, Anne Rice once said, is that people know that my books are serious and they are meant to make a difference and that they are meant to be literature. Whether that's stupid or pretentious sounding, I don't care. They're meant to be in those backpacks on the Berkeley campus, along with Castaneda and Tolstoy and anybody else. When I get dismissed as a pop writer, I go crazy. 
Yeah, that's a that's a familiar refrain, especially from that era, right? I mean, it was sort of the that was not when her heyday was not exactly when like popular fiction was being defined, but it was sort of being redefined for the future, right? I mean, it was these the big like tentpole authors who were sort of a separate category from serious fiction. I mean, that was that was that was the glory days, wasn't it? Yeah, those big fat books. A book could still stir the popular imagination in mm-hmm. that way. You oh, really yeah. would have an everybody's reading this kind of you, feeling, or at least all your parents and their your parents and their friends are reading this kind of feeling when those books came down the pipeline. When we were, I mean, when it, in, in the year like nineteen, pick your year in the year nineteen ninety five, okay. you would know a movie was big because you would see a line outside the theater. And you would know a book was big because you'd see a you'd see a fifth like a fifty or hundred book stack of it in Barnes and Noble. Like it was the physical space that it occupied in the store was all you needed to know. Yeah, and people would tell you about it. Uh, on that note, David, I put together some eighties, nineties commercial fiction power rankings. Ooh, all right. Would all you right, like let's to do respond this. to these? Number one has got to be Stephen King. My only question is whether Stephen King's on the list because he has transcended it. Not just in terms of being more literary, like the Anne Rice complaint, but he's just sort of transcendent literature. I mean, he's such a he's just a thing. But yes, if he's on the list, he's number one. Okay, but by the, by what you just nailed down, like new novel out, everybody's talking about it in the bookstore, the display, everything. Stephen King, Stephen number King, one. Stephen King. By the way, I, I'm gonna parameters. guess. I'm gonna guess that there's a lot of people on this list. I, I can imagine a lot of people on this list. I'm gonna guess Stephen King compared to some of them, also had a, a more probably low wattage releases than other people. Stephen King would always have that one book that was just like maybe under an assumed name or whatever, but you'd all know it's Stephen King and it's like 95 pages instead of 500 and it would just show up <laughs> and you'd be like, is that should I, is that a new one? Should I know about that? And it was just one they decided not to push as a big Stephen King book, but yes, he's the best. He's the greatest. Well, but also with him, he was so prolific mm-hmm. that the releases did not quite have the just gigantic event thing because he didn't wait three or four years between books. Yeah, but a lot of these, a lot of the authors of this year have figured that out pretty quickly too. It was a book a year for just about all the big names at a certain point. But let's keep keep going on the list. Number two, Michael Crichton. Without a doubt. Now he 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 spent some time between books. He he was just you know he took his time, but man, every book, every and it was like it defied the, the readership defied categorization. Yeah, and the New York Times op eds were coming out like like as soon as the book was in publication. He mm-hmm. he, he had a run there. Number three, Robert Ludlum. Yeah, maybe yeah. a little looking back given the Bourne movies, but that was big. Number four, John Grisham. I would put Grisham above Ludlum. Uh, Ludlum falls, kind of falls into a, a group category with all the uh, American is Robert Ludlum American, all the American dudes writing the sort of CIA, you know, six days of that condor Sp- influence, spy. like marathon man sort of like influence stuff. Yeah, spy stuff. But it was, um, but yeah, for sure. Grisham was, Grisham was a one man machine. And, you know, I love John Grisham. I mean, I've, I've read a good bit of John Grisham, but the greatest thing about John Grisham was that I shared his taste. Like we, all of his favorite writers were my favorite writers. He liked the music that I liked for a long time. He like subsidized the Oxford American magazine for, for a while. Like he, he's just a, he's, he was fantastic, fantastic human, good writer. I, I didn't know where you're going with that. I thought you both liked, uh, you know, ideologically and ambitious young lawyers. That was, well, that I was can't deny that. 
Number five, Anne Rice, for the reasons mentioned. Number six, mm -hmm. Amy Tan. Oh, another one I wasn't sure if she was going to fit the categorization, but absolutely. Yeah, and again, not trying to not try to you know put her down with this, but those books were big. Number seven, Terry McMillan. Mm -hmm. Number eight, Scott Turow. Yeah, S sort of John Grisham, but less productive and without the kind of gigantic bestsellers, but presumed innocent in its day. Also, book. also book publishing. I'm, I'm sure this is widely known, but the book publishing lore. He obviously he could have gotten a lot money, a lot more money from a publisher that wasn't FSG, but was committed to the ideology and the idea of keeping the great literary publisher for our Shastru and, and, you know, helping them make cash. Number nine, Judith Krantz, just to get that whole part of the commercial okay. fiction spectrum in there. And number 10, Clive Cussler. Oh yeah. And I was going to put somebody else because I know there's another writer who's just like Clive Cussler, who I always got confused with him. Didn't, mm -hmm. read, him, didn't read the other guy either, but I just can't remember his name. Yeah. So Clive Cussler and the other guy. Okay. Sharing the number 10 spot. Also receiving votes, David, Tony Hillerman. Oh, I forgot Hillerman. Am I one of my mom's favorite writers of all time? Uh, all right. See, I'm just going here. The names I scribbled down that you didn't mention. Um, Sidney Sheldon, um, uh, Danielle Steele. I mean, this is obviously a little bit more. Danielle far Steele could have the Judith Krantz uh, slot. Exactly. Okay. Uh, also, Jackie Collins. Um, in, the, in the horror category, right below Stephen King is Dean R. Koontz. But, I mean, he, he was... <laughs> Been around for a long time, but he sold a shit ton of books. Oh, yeah. Um, Not quite the event, perhaps, the other ones were, but that's a good Was Ken Follett on the list? Ken Follett sold a billion books in so for, for like a, a five-year window. Yes. I feel he was a little bit before this time and then slid into this period, but absolutely. Mm -hmm. A lot absolutely. of the names that I just said were, yeah. Uh, um, also in the before this time, it continued were James Mishner, Mary Higgins Clark. What about James Clavell and other sort of like- Oh, so, my yeah. God. Yeah, uh, yeah Pat Conroy. One. There's all these old, like, 70s, like, sweeping narrative writers that kept going. Um, oh, Nelson DeMille. That's another that's, one. That, that's the Clive Cussler Is that the guy, guy you were thinking that's of? That's it. Okay. Yeah, that's who I thought. All right. Clive Cussler, Nelson DeMille. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, the James Mishner thing was particularly fascinating because those books were all looked to be, like, 800 pages long. Mm -hmm. Every friend's parent had at least one of those on their shelf. Mm-hmm. I, I think when my mom started letting me buy hardback books, just, you know, like you're trying to follow in your parents' example, it'd be like, I would like James Mishner's Alaska for yeah. my book this month. I didn't read it. And I still have very little idea of what his books are. Mm -mm. They're like about locations, but they're fiction. Yes. I'm I should, we can get my told. dad on the phone. I think he would know the answer, but I, I don't know. <laughs> There's stories told to kind of conjure the history of a place, perhaps, like a fictionalized retelling of some great kind of elevator like a pitch. Textbook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, farewell, Anne Rice. All right, Sanford David Shoemaker guesses the strain bun headline. All right. Last Monday's headline about an assessment of the recent UN climate change conference was Glasgow half full. Today's headline comes from listener Levi. It's from the L.A. Times. I'm going to read you the top of the story, datelined Milan, Italy, David. This is a great one. A dentist in Italy faces possible criminal charges after trying to receive a COVID-19 vaccine in a fake arm made of silicone. A fake arm made of silicone. A nurse in the northern city of Biella... Filippa Bua said she could tell right away that something was off when the man presented the phony limb for a shot Thursday. 
When I uncovered the arm, I felt the skin. I felt skin that was cold and gummy, and the color was too light. She told a newspaper. So a man is getting an injection in his fake arm. I'll spot you a few words here. He figured using fake arm. What was the Los Angeles Times's strained pun headline? He figured using fake arm. Yeah, I remember this is newspapers, so sometimes there's not the articles. Man figured using fake arm was as good as real arm. Fake arm would pass. Um, mm, keep going. Pass inspection. Infection. Passing. Pass. In, mm. uh, pass uh, Maybe he didn't know it would would work. The ruse, David. But figured using fake arm was worth a try. Was worth a shot. Worth a worth, shot. All right. Was, figured using fake arm was worth a shot. Yeah, that's great. He is David Shoemaker. I'm Brian Curtis. Production magic by Isaiah Blakely. We, David and I are going to be back next Monday to send you off into the holidays, and we need to do our year in media show, David. All right, year in media. Let's do it. Make your list. Uh, number one, Rachel Nichols. All uh, right. Number two, Rachel. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, we're going to do all the big stories, run them down uh, from the year in media. I'll be back this Friday. We'll have some stuff planned for over the break as well. Plus, of course, more lukewarm takes about the media. See you then, David. See you later, Brian. <laughs>